Hello and welcome to PolicyPod, a new podcast series from the University of Southampton. In this series of podcasts, we'll be hearing about topical policy debates informed with evidence produced from researchers at the University of Southampton. Today we're joined by uh, Dr Michael Head uh, and we're going to be talking about uh, resin. So um, as, the, as the snowflakes, as you can see out of the window, slowly filtering down a little bit over, over Southampton there. Um, resin, what, what is it? Good morning. Yeah, thank, thank you for inviting me along to this podcast. Um, So RESIN stands for the Research Investments in Global Health Study. Um, It's a project that's been going for a few years now. Previously it was unfunded in my previous life at UCL, where we started to look at the the map of the research landscape in the UK, particularly around infectious diseases, uh, where we tried to look at who was doing what in research. Mm -hmm. Specifically in the UK? It was focusing on the UK initially and focusing on infectious diseases. Uh, Such a project didn't really exist before. Uh, not in any kind of grand scale. So we, we started to, to map who was doing what. Um, and then as ideas evolved, that became essentially the research investments in global health study, mm-hmm. where we looked at the UK output for all infectious disease research, but that included the global health work. Um, so where the University of Southampton or one of the schools of tropical medicine was funded to do research in HIV in Kenya, then we included such products in our database as well. So eventually around 2013, analysed how much money was given to HIV research, tuberculosis, malaria, pneumonia and so on. And then just to make the data a little bit more meaningful, we looked at the money, the investments alongside the global burden of disease. So how much money is the UK investing in research in each area? versus how much disease is actually out there, how many cases, how many deaths, and so on. And then that just gives you an idea of kind of the relative level of spins when you compare each disease to each other. Mm-hmm. So we're able to show, for example, that some of the neglected tropical diseases, the NTDs, um, that often have long and unpronounceable names like trypanosomiasis and schistosomiasis, <laughs> uh, but the UK does quite a lot in those areas. Okay. Again, the schools of tropical medicine do lots. So the UK has probable research strengths in those diseases, um, whereas areas like pneumonia and some of these sexually transmitted infections like syphilis or gonorrhea, we thought looked particularly underfunded compared to their global burden of disease. Mm-hmm. So now we are now funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and we're looking at building a global data set of infectious disease research funding trends. So we're looking at money coming from the G20 countries, which is where most of the world's money is, and building a big global data set on who's doing what an infection, essentially. So so the jump from unfunded at, at UCL to engaging with uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation uh, seems uh, you, you effortlessly passed through that, but, but I guess it's probably a bit harder than the, than that. What, what were the, how did you make contact with the Gates Foundation to, to start with? How was it that that became the, the path that you, that you found yourself on? So, yeah, no, I certainly simplified the pathway and skipped over <laughs> numerous steps at that point. So we were looking to get funding for it, and all the funders have been interested in this work and very engaged with the results and the outputs and giving us advice on what we could do next. Uh, but they all often have fixed funding streams, and an analysis of their funding portfolios is often outside of their funding streams. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we actually found it very difficult to get funding to analyse the funding. Sure. Uh, we did try a few small grants with some of the professional bodies and societies, uh, but they didn't come off. We did have informal conversations with colleagues in Infection and Immunity at Welcome who showed interest and invited us to submit an application, but in between us writing it and submitting it, there was large staff changes at Welcome and new people came in who weren't so engaged with the idea. So that didn't get anywhere. So 
we managed to get in touch with directly with the pneumonia group at the Gates Foundation right. and said to them, we do this work on investments. Uh, as you can see with the UK, um, elliptic pneumonia is an underfunded disease. Would you like us to plot a map globally to see mm-hmm. what the state of play is around the world with pneumonia research? So we essentially pitched the idea to them with an out of the loo email, really. Mm-hmm. And things went on from there. We were invited to submit a full application. And yeah, we were then given um, just under $600,000 to fund two members of staff and consume board's budget um, over a two and a half year period to essentially create uh, this database of pneumonia research, present the results, and compare how pneumonia fares alongside other infectious diseases. Mm-hmm. So with the, with the comparisons that you're being able to bring between spend and number of, number of cases, on a, on a global scale, you can see that some nations are, are stronger or spending more heavily on particular areas. Do you use that information to then go back to those particular governments to say, hey, you could be doing more in this area, or to say you're committing funding to this and another nation is committing funding to this and perhaps it would be better to, to distribute your funding elsewhere? Um, is, can this be used by, uh, by, by government departments to be able to, to set targets or does this sit separately to that? How, what is your, what's your engagement? I suppose? I'm not so sure about setting targets. How we describe this work, we use it um, to inform the thinking of policymakers and decision makers. So I think it's important we don't regard this work as the answer, um, but we think it provides very valuable and quite rigorous data that can help governments and the World Health Organization and research funders um, just to inform their thinking and produce slightly more coherent joined up strategies um, that target areas of high need. Mm-hmm. So our work is still ongoing. We've close to finishing it. We produced a report on pneumonia research and we're finishing off the other infectious diseases. So that data will be available in the next few months. Um, and we think pneumonia is going to come out quite underfunded, again, compared to the global burden of disease, mm-hmm. even when you have a global portfolio. So we'll be able to show that data to, again, the other funders, to the World Health Organization, um, and perhaps encourage them to push pneumonia up their priority list. Mm-hmm. And I think being able to provide numbers to support that argument is important, particularly if you can put pound signs or dollar signs next to it. For sure. I think a counter example would be um, with antimicrobial resistance. We've known it's going to be a massive problem for the last 30 years, but it's not really been the subject of any great focus, particularly politically and from governments mm-hmm. and from those kind of sectors. Since economists have been able to put dollar signs on how much it's going to cost, that suddenly has stirred political communities into action. Yeah, yeah. You can say till you're blue in the face, it's going to cost this many lives, and they'll go, OK, fine. And then you say it's going to cost this much, and then you go, oh, that's a lot of money, isn't it? Yeah. So I think, again, being able to put dollar signs next to our estimates of spend and comparisons with burden of disease, um, I think is important to engage minds beyond the academic realm. Sure. We will kind of get into the thought processes of policymakers mm-hmm. and politicians and funders at that point. Um, and being able to use, as you say, being able to use money to, to, to do that is a, is a useful tool to, mm. uh, to make it a, a, a comparative. It doesn't really manifest itself too differently on the ground. Um, yeah, you're right, the Gates Foundation do, do tend to contract people to do particular requested bits of work. Um, whereas a research funder like Welcome will receive the applications um, uh, and then award, and then the researchers have a bit more flexibility to, to change plans um, throughout their grants. 
Um, but for us, it's certainly, we haven't really noticed any difference really. Uh, we've stuck to our original plans anyway, as we kind of proposed the ideas to them and they kind of said, that's fine. We'll award you to do that. Mm-hmm. So we, we followed those paths. Um, and our, our methods that we piloted with the UK data set that we're now rolling out with the global data set, they worked and we kind of explored a little bit more going forward in terms of engaging with the international funders and international policymakers, of course. Uh, so we, we have been a little bit flexible with how we approach things going forward because this is slightly untested territory. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but in, in terms of how the money comes to us and what we've been uh, contracted to do, it, it operates pretty much like a research grant. Okay. But there probably are some legal people behind the background who might say slightly differently. But as far as the researchers, us doing the work goes, it's been uh, kind of business as usual, really. Um, from your conversations with the Gate Foundation, so what... what when when this project reports and comes back to them, do you know how they're looking to use this as, as evidence to, to advocate for, for additional spending? Is this something that they'll want you to be involved in, in terms of agenda setting for uh, for World Health Organization? Is that, are, the, are those kind of the parts of the conversations that you have about what they'll do once the contract has been completed? Yeah, so part of the um, grant that we wrote for them included a significant amount of dissemination to the appropriate people. In terms of their advocacy, they have an adv- advocacy team mm-hmm. within their research groups. So we're funded by the pneumonia group and they're kind of divided up into uh, rather kind of disease specific areas who each have their own budget and it's the pneumonia group that gives us the money. So then there is a pneumonia advocacy team okay. who have an interest in promoting pneumonia as a neglected disease um, and increasing both kind of research and non-research operational implementation type funding to address pneumonia. Because a million people die a year of pneumonia, most of them uh, children in resource-poor areas around the world. So it's a very, very high burden of disease with high mortality. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think data like ours suggesting that it's been underfunded compared to the number of deaths worldwide is something that might help focus minds. Mm-hmm. There is going to be a white paper coming out towards the end of 2018 that we are contributing our figures to. There are other colleagues looking at um, implementation funding associated with pneumonia and also looking at burden of disease figures. And we're going to um, contribute our data to that. So we'll have quite a significant influence in that output. And then again, that might help focus policymakers' minds with a kind of sort of set agenda within this particular paper. Um, that pneumonia needs greater focus. There was a 2017 report by Save the Children that was heavily backed by the Gates Foundation, among others, uh, that also had a foreword by Kofi Annan, um, which I think might be quite influential in just in highlighting the significant burden of disease uh, and some pragmatic recommendations. For example, each country should develop a pneumonia action plan. And I think that's something we might be able to help with in terms of providing... Um, a coherent and current database of research that's been going on in their country and relevant pieces of work from outside their country that can help inform policy making. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we can take our sort of research funding knowledge and apply it to implementing policy as well, I think. So I think we can have a role to play going forward, having analysed um, what the numbers look like. And I think, I think yeah, as we said earlier, governments might be interested to receive that information um, and also perhaps strategy documents that might come out of people like the World Health Organization or the Gates Foundation themselves will yeah. like to use our data to inform that. So we're talking around the 
The metrics for research and uh, and certainly for, for everyone in higher education in the in the UK at the moment, um, Ref twenty twenty one is uh, is um, uh, an, an unmovable object that we're that we're all hurtling towards. Um, so, in terms of how this this project and your and your feelings on around uh, uh, measuring research impacts, what how how do you feel this project integrates in terms of the the measuring that that the Ref does? Yeah, and uh, certainly universities are rather obsessed with a lot of refing and teffing at the moment. Um, I mean, I think this kind of work, particularly with how it links with policymakers in a kind of a unique way, we have got such a large network of policy-related contacts across the world's health organisation, across the funders, across the professional bodies and societies and the advocacy groups and the charities. Um, so I think our work in terms of taking research knowledge um, and translating that into numbers that policymakers can use and then potentially translating that into policy impact via national action plans and so on um, could form quite a nice case study for, um, for, the, for the REF perhaps. And also our methods in terms of measuring research, we can then take that forward and look at the impact of those particular bits of research. So we'll be able to sort of show how much funding you're putting in and how much impact you're getting out. Yeah, yeah in terms of simple things like bibliometrics, publication numbers, citation numbers, but then also the slightly more qualitative aspects, um, like have you impacted upon health policy? Um, have you done training in resource poor areas? Have you built capacity? Things like that. So I think those sorts of approaches might be quite useful for, for, for resin as a case study, but also um, for impact managers everywhere in terms of uh, kind of bringing approaches to consolidating databases of information and then how you might systematically get information out of it. Um, we need to measure everything these days, including impact of research. So I, th I think our approaches certainly can assist with that. Mm -hmm. As you say, you know, that, that, that data is there and being held, but it, it isn't being analysed to be able to determine which should be uh, which should be higher in terms of the focus for particular places or not. And it's, it's interesting to be able to do that secondary work on that existing data sets mm. to be able to, to, to draw some more inference from it. So uh, uh, amongst the um, the illustrious uh, funders that, uh, that have been involved in your product, um, some time ago now uh, Public Policy at Southampton put some small seed money together to, to support with some uh, stakeholder dissemination activities. Um, at the stage that the project was in at that time, how did that um, chart a course for you? How was that useful in terms of, of cementing the, the project or gaining contacts with other people? Yeah, no, the public policy unit funding was really, really helpful to us. We had quite good networks within the UK um, in terms of the professional bodies, societies and funders and so on. But certainly internationally, we um, weren't very strong in that particular area. So the public policy unit funding went towards three stakeholder meetings, one in London at the Wellcome Trust, one in Brussels at the UK Research Office and one in Geneva at the World Health Organization headquarters. And this funding was great because it meant we could bring in a range of stakeholders from, for example, the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, DFID, uh, the Meningitis Research Foundation, Welcome MRC, all sent along representatives to the London meeting. European Commission, a few of their colleagues came to the Brussels meeting, for example as well as EDCTP, the European Developing Countries Clinical Trials Partnership, um, the WHO Brussels office came along. And then in Geneva, we had lots of colleagues from the World Health Organization, 
and the TDR organization and a few of the other Geneva-based global stakeholders. There are about 20 or so people at, eight, at each meeting, um, many of whom we'd never heard of before. And, and so the Public Policy Funding plus also um, the pub, Public Policy Unit contacts in those countries, particularly the Brussels contacts, were really helpful in us being able to present about RIS and what we've done so far and what we were up to. Um, and we repeated those meetings in 2017 as well. The first lot were 2016 and repeated them in 2017. And we had even more people come to those meetings. Mm -hmm. So we've got quite a lot of engagement so that when we have our final results available in 2018, we've got a ready-made network of policymakers who understand what we've done and what we're up to and can receive those results and essentially enact them as they wish. Mm -hmm. um, and the fact that we are kind of a known brand, if you like, I think will be helpful in those results having an impact in their thinking and how they put strategies forward from here on in. Yeah, and there's something around the... So uh, REF kind of focuses people to think that maybe impact is the thing that happens at the end once the work's been done. And I think from, from what you're saying there, it, 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 it underlines the importance that engaging with the endpoint uh, users, uh, the policymakers, once the findings have been done, is important to happen before the work has, has begun and as the, uh, as the work is going through. So this isn't something that you're suddenly trying to establish and build those relationships with people, but it's something that's on their radar, that they're mm. aware of the work which is happening, interested in where the outcomes will be. So that by the time that the project does come to report, the, as you say, the, the, those connections are there already. Um, and you're not having to, to, to suddenly build those contacts. I think that's something which um, sometimes can be missed when people are planning how the policy impacts in particular of their, of their work will, will, will come to fruition. Yeah, and I think networking is a probably a vastly underrated skill, um, but having contacts everywhere in as many relevant sectors as you can is just really, really useful because you never know when that five-minute conversation at a conference three years ago might suddenly come in useful. Mm. Um. So having established contact and built relationships with important policymakers, when you next crop up on their radar, if they already know who you are, then you've already got trust with them mm -hmm. um, and they will look at your results. Uh, whereas before, it might just have been another bit of paper on their desk they would glance yeah. down and put in the bin. So I think yeah, establishing the relationships at the start of your research and as you're going through is really, really useful for when you come to disseminate the results at the end. No, it's it's hard because you know you want to get on with doing the work and uh, the idea of having conversations with people that may or may not come to something in, in three years' time seems like um, like the opportunity cost is a little bit too high for a lot of, a lot of researchers. Um, uh, uh, but it, it's really interesting to hear that you found that having those conversations has been useful in in, in, in guiding the project to, to some extent because you have a, an understanding about who's going to be coming in at the end um, and also about having that very wide uh, understanding of people that may be interested in that area. Um, as you say, people move around from, from role to role as well so if you can establish trust with the individual um, maybe their portfolio changes, but they, they can still be really relevant to you in, in pushing your work forward at another stage. Yeah, absolutely. Now, one of my colleagues from Wellcome Trust has recently moved to the MRC, so I've got another another contact at the MRC, which will be useful. Mm -hmm. um, and he can obviously advise on who the relevant colleagues are back at his old stomping ground at the Wellcome Trust. Mm -hmm. um, so again, that kind of institutional knowledge, yeah. whether you're still at that institution or not, is quite useful just for sort of ways in and who to get in touch with and who might be interested. Um, 
I think in terms of uh, sort of the amount of time it takes to network with these people, I think the stakeholder meetings we held were useful because then there's 20 odd people in the room at the same time. So it's two hours out of their time, as they don't mind giving. Um, and it's a little bit of your time to set up the meeting, but not a vast amount. So you can then get people's thoughts and get on people's radar en masse then. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and we then wrote our, um, we wrote, wrote up a meeting report in a journal called BMC Proceedings. So mm -hmm. again, our thoughts are now out there in print. Um, when we're engaged with new policymakers, we can link to that report and say, we did these meetings with important people in tables A, B and C, it says who attended. So you can see the names and the institutions they represented. So again, that in itself has also been helpful for new engagement. Mm -hmm. The fact that we've got this long list of people we have engaged with and they're yeah. impressive people. Yeah, yeah. Um, again, that kind of builds an immediacy of trust as well, that you are a credible group yeah. and that you're likely to produce credible findings. So again, it all spirals, it sure. snowballs a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I suppose it, always good to say that in the show notes there's uh, links to uh, to that particular article um, and there's some uh, some notes on uh, on the resin project with a bit more detail um, I suppose the, the the final question to ask is um, what what next for resin so we are currently speaking with the Gates Foundation about extending our contract which is due to end this year I think the the plans that I mentioned earlier about perhaps informing national action plans is somewhere where we could take this. We could update our existing database of research, keep that as an ongoing project, um, but also make that information useful in terms of linking in with policymakers in high priority countries and in sub-Saharan Africa, let's say, um, and help to develop their policy action plans um, and perhaps get some pilot studies going on some primary research. Um, I've made some contact with colleagues in Ghana um, and we wrote a paper jointly with our Ghanaian colleagues about pneumonia in Ghana raising the profile. That was published in International Health at the start of 2018. Um, and it kind of describes the problems particular to Ghana um, and has a recommended list of research priorities as well. Mm -hmm. um, so again, we can make that sort of impact too with our database of knowledge and then perhaps impact upon policymakers. Um, and that could go wider in terms of impact with the funders if they kind of see this list of priorities that the Ghanaian experts have said, this is what we would like done, this is what we think is feasible in our setting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think kind of further strategies around prioritization of research, impact upon health policy, and continuing to assess the funding trends, um, which just evolve and change all the time with things like Ebola coming in, Zika and other public health emergencies you then get pockets of money being awarded to those areas. Um, and I think it's often at the expense of other areas. We need to sort of kind of try and chart and map what's going up and what's going down as time goes on. Um, and then kind of sort of see if there's, there is an impact upon the burdens of disease. Mm -hmm. um, I think strategies should be constantly evolving and free-flowing a little bit. So having up-to-date information that helps inform those will keep that bit of work going. That's great. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to bring it to a close now and head out into I mean it's barely a blizzard is there but I mean there were there were some snowflakes there's a bit of there white floating there the was window, something yes. there was white floating across the window but I'm going to I'm going to call it snowflakes um anyway right. thanks very much for coming in pleasure thank you
That was Dr. Michael Head speaking around the resin project. As ever, in the show notes, you can find uh, links to the reports that we discussed and uh, links to to Michael's page um, on the Public Policy website. If you like the show, subscribe, tell your friends, rate us uh, using um, iTunes or your preferred platform, and follow us on Twitter at Public Policy UOS for more updates around the next programme. 